Amen. Let's turn in God's holy word. Please be seated. And let's turn in God's holy word to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. This morning, chapter 8. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the saints in Rome. He has not seen them. He knows them. As we can tell from the end of the chapter or the book, he has many friends there, but he's never been there. He looks forward to going there one day, but he's going to write this letter in preparation of that day so that he might, as he does so often, speak of my gospel. He speaks of the gospel that he's preached probably by this time 20, 25 years. And so he proclaims the glories of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul will. He will get to Rome, but not the way he thinks he will. Not the way he desires. He will be brought to Rome in chains on account of the gospel, but he will be there to proclaim Christ. Romans 8, verse 18. Our text will be verses 26 and 27. Reading from the English Standard Version. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing For the unveiling of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit himself helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they all perish. But the word of our God, it endures forever and forever. And this is God's word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we bless you for your word. We thank you that your word is a revelation to us of yourself and of the glory of the Trinity, the righteousness of God the power of God for salvation to whoever believes, to the Jew first and then the Greek. 
We thank you, Lord, for your promise that if we open our mouths wide, that you would fill it. You would fill it with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. You would satisfy us. And so do prosper us this morning according to your riches in Christ Jesus and grant us that we might all the more love you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans is a glorious chapter on the assurance of our faith. We had our call to worship this morning from the first two verses. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it ends on that great climax of how there is no separation either with those who are found in Christ Jesus. There's nothing in heaven above or earth beneath. There are no powers. There is nothing, not even our sin, nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus, our Savior. And in between verses 1 and 2 and the end of this chapter, the apostle seeks to work out that which Christ has obtained for us, that which we, which Paul has already explained in chapters 3 through chapter 8, and summarize then in verse 1 and 2 that there is no condemnation and there's no separation. In between then, what the apostle does is he seeks to help us understand how the gospel that our Lord Jesus Christ has obtained for us by his death and resurrection is now applied to us as the children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if you look in this chapter, you'll notice all sorts of references to the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit who works in us. The Spirit who enables us to, to become the children of God. We who now are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. And at the end of verse, uh, at the end of verse 12, or uh, actually 11, when the apostle speaks of the great riches that we enjoy in Christ Jesus, or 17, he says, provided we suffer with Christ Jesus in order that we may be glorified with him. And so Paul's saying the pattern of Christ's life is the pattern of our lives. First the cross, then the crown. First suffering, and then glory. And in fact, he says, the sufferings of this world, of this age, are little, in fact, insignificant to the glory that one day will be revealed to the children of God. But Paul's a realist. He understands who we are. He understands that we live in this world. And when you look at his letters to the church in Corinth, you understand how he suffered for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows how we suffer for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in different ways. And so he helps us, encourages us with these words. 
So in verses 19 through 22, the apostle speaks to us of groaning. And there are three groanings that he speaks of. First then, in 1922, Paul speaks of the creation. It's subject to, it's, it was subject to bondage, to corruption. But this groaning, Paul says, is not the groaning of one in the throes of death. No, it is a creation that is groaning, longing for the redemption of the sons of God. It's anticipating the freedom from the curse of God. We might put it this way. It is not in the throes of death, but it is groaning in the throes of a paternity ward. It is looking forward to the new restoration of life that God will bless this creation with. In fact, Paul's saying it's craning its neck. It can hardly wait for that day of restoration when all things will be made new. And then within the groaning creation, Paul says, there is the groaning church, verses 23 through 25. As we too wait eagerly, yet patiently, for the day when the Spirit's work in us will be brought to consummation, when we shall know the full reality of being the children of God, the adoption as sons of God, and the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection. And now in verse 26 and verse 27, the apostle speaks of a third groaning. So under the groaning of this creation in which we live, there is the groaning of the church. But here is the great part. Under the groaning of the creation and the church, there is the wordless groaning of the Spirit of Christ himself on behalf of the saints. And the Spirit's prayer, Paul says, which is always according to the will of God, will assuredly be answered. And so what Paul does here is he is explaining to us the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the context of our life from the time he does his work of regeneration to the time he brings us home. And he's telling us that because of the Spirit's groaning, our prayers will be answered. He assures us of that. And because they'll be answered, so will the prayers of believers be answered and also the groaning of the whole creation. Therefore, we may be sure that the future glory outweighs the present pain and suffering. And the Apostle Paul says, for in this hope we are saved. It's a hope that shall be realized. And so this morning, then, we're going to consider two things from these verses. First, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in helping believers. And then an illustration of the Spirit helping us in our prayer life. So first, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and then an illustration of how the Spirit helps us. First, then, the ministry of the Holy Spirit helping us. Verse 26. The Apostle says, Likewise, in the same manner, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
One of the great blessings we enjoy and the benefits that we have as believers is to know the Spirit's work in our lives. The Spirit's work in our lives. It's a life that is sustained. It's a life that is encouraged and refreshed by the Spirit as we journey on to glory. All of us would agree we cannot live this life in our own strength. And when we do, we fail. But out of the Spirit, we press on to glory. And what's so encouraging is that the apostle here reminds us that we have a weakness. He is not being specific here. It's rather general. But it's true of all Christians everywhere. We are weak. We cannot stand on our own. We are feeble. We are frail. We are fragile. And there is much that comes against us every day that seeks to overthrow us. There's much that seeks to overwhelm us. And thus we need the Spirit. Now we have these weaknesses because we live in a fallen world. Creation is groaning because it's under the weight of that bondage that we in Adam put upon this creation. And though we've been delivered from the dominion of sin, as Paul tells us in chapter 6, yet there is this remnant of sin that is very much present with us and that we need to fight against. That weakness, that experience alone is a great battle, but it's a battle for holiness to be sanctified so that we might live with our Lord. It's not easy. We can't live the Christian life alone. We would fail. But notice what the apostle says here. In the midst of our weakness, we have someone who helps us, who aids us, and that is the person of the blessed Holy Spirit. Now, this is most comforting and reassuring, isn't it? We're so often weak. We find ourselves in situations and we just don't know what to do. As the Apostle Paul affirms here, we're at the end of the road. We don't know which way to turn. We're perplexed. We're agonizing over something, overwhelmed in life. We can't find a solution. But the Apostle Paul tells us there is someone who helps us in our weakness. Comes alongside us to help us along. Now, you wouldn't know it from our reading this morning in the English Standard Version, or for that matter, any English Standard Bible. The full import of this word that is translated for us here in our text as help. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. It's a compound word. In fact, it's a Greek word that's made up of three words. Three words, two prefixes, and then the verb. And the first prefix means with. The second prefix means over against. And then the verb, it carries this idea of taking hold of something taking hold of something. Now, if we put all three words together, 
you get the sense that the Holy Spirit is someone who takes hold of something with us as he stands over against us on the other side, as it were, facing us. Let me illustrate. While our family lived in Ontario, Canada, one of the places we enjoyed going to was the St. Jacob's Farmer's Market. We usually went in the fall when the farmers would bring in their produce. And many of those contributors to the market were of Mennonite descent. And one display that we often uh, visited and rather enjoyed was the site where they made apple cider. And they would always give us a sample so that we would purchase some apple cider, a precursor to Costco. Now, one occasion at the end of the day as we were leaving, I noticed an older Mennonite man endeavoring to load his buggy. Apparently, he hadn't sold out of all his apples, and this bushel basket was still quite full. And he was trying to load the basket on his buggy, and it's one of the baskets, or these baskets where they're, it's wood woven and two metal handles on each side. And he was trying to get that on his buggy, but he was unsuccessful. He struggled. And so I quickly ran over to this gentleman, and I grabbed the other wire handle of that bushel basket and helped him lift that bushel of apples onto his buggy. And then I realized his weakness. Amos only had one arm. He couldn't bring that bushel of apples to the buggy with only one arm. And this is what the Spirit does. He notices our weakness. And then, as it were, he grabs the other side. He helps us out. He takes hold of our situation and carries it with us, together with us. We on one side, he on the other side, and we have success. Now, it's important to notice here that the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us to get out of the way and he'll do it all by himself. No, we're not robots. No, we are the children of God. He, rather, is working with us. He is working in tandem with us so that while he's carrying one end, he is sustaining us on the other end so that we, too, can carry the load. He carries our burdens with us. That's Paul's point here. He carries the burdens with us. That whatever your weakness might be, the Holy Spirit of God, he notices and he comes alongside and over against you, carries the burdens with you. How often, isn't it, in the Christian life where we say we can't do it anymore? I can't handle it any longer. 
Perhaps someone has spoken unkindly to you, derided you, discouraged you, and you're downcast. The Spirit notices. And the Spirit comes along in his loving way and he upholds you and he cares for you and he bears your burden with you and he sustains you by his grace. You see, his ministry to us is so gracious that he helps us, he assists us. He comes alongside of us. He notices us to encourage and lifts up the heavy end. And perhaps most special of all is that he doesn't despise us in our weakness, but he seeks to help us. And in fact, he delights to carry our burdens with us. What a precious God and a Savior we have in the Spirit of Christ. And we can see why the scriptures then speak about him as the Spirit of Christ who does not snuff out a dimly burning wick or break a bruised reed. This is the ministry of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ to us, his people. But then secondly, an illustration of that Spirit's ministry to us. And the example that the Apostle gives us is one of prayer. At the end of verse 26 and verse 27, Paul writes, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a remarkable illustration. Because prayer in itself is a weakness, isn't it? We wouldn't pray if we didn't need help so often. We wouldn't have petitions if we could supply ourselves with what we needed. But prayer is in itself an act of our helplessness, our weakness. It shows dependency upon the Lord And in intercessory prayer, we acknowledge him that we need help, that we can't do it alone. We cry out, we can't do it, Lord, but you can. You have promised to help us. You can carry the burden. But Paul tells us something that we know in our prayer life. And that is, sometimes we don't know what to pray. Or even how to pray. On occasion, my wife, woman, and I will go and meet with a family or some person who's in great need and who's overcome with difficulties and overwhelmed with life, with their circumstances that they find themselves in. And they're far beyond what we can do physically for them. That would be the easy part. But we're at a loss so often how to pray or what to pray. And I turned to Wilma and said to her, I do not know what to pray for, for our friends. And I'm sure you've been in a situation like that more than once when you just don't know what to say. It's not that you don't want to pray, 
but you don't know what to pray or how to pray. You're at a loss at words because of the perplexities of the situation. Everything's coming together. And, and, and there's this ignorance because of the incoherence of the reality. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to say to people. We know we need to pray, but we don't know our way around. We're confused. And so often then, our confusion leaves us speechless. Or in an instant, our world can be turned upside down. And you know you need the help of the Lord, but you're in such distress and duress that you cannot even articulate words to use. You are speechless. And all it seems you can do is weep and weep. And the Apostle Paul says, he acknowledges this situation with the children of God. He understands who we are, how we feel, and our incapacity sometimes to pray. And the Apostle Paul tells us that when we're in such situations, something amazing actually happens. When we do not know what to pray, for as he, we ought, Paul says, the Holy Spirit, the precious Spirit himself intercedes for us. He sees you in your weakness, and then he prays for you. Isn't that glorious? He prays on your behalf. Now, most of us know that we have an intercessor with God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he is the one, Paul says earlier in chapter 8, that always intercedes for us. He's at the Father's right hand. But Paul says here that the Spirit himself, who indwells us as new creations, he is our intercessor. And his ministry then comes from within us. And in this mysterious way, when we're overwhelmed or speechless, we're still prayed for. We're upheld by the Spirit of Christ Jesus. All our needs are brought before the Lord Jesus because the Spirit is our intercessor, the one from within. But it's more profound than even that. The Apostle Paul says that our Heavenly Father sees into the deep things of our heart. Verse 27. And he, that is God the Father, he who searches hearts, he who searches hearts. Now, that can be a frightening thing, can't it? God searching your heart. You don't want anyone else here searching your heart. But God, he does search your heart. Yes, it's true. He sees your sin. He knows all about you. But our God is so gracious, more gracious than any of us. He is so gracious that, yes, he sees my sin. But he doesn't blast me for it. No. He seeks to care for me as my father. He loves his children. And he seeks to serve us. He searches our hearts, you see, so that he might know our longings, my heart, my needs, my weaknesses, my frailties, my expressions of confusion, my, my perplexity. 
And at the same time, as the Father searches our hearts, the Apostle Paul says, he hears the intercession of the Spirit praying for us from within us. And Paul says what the Spirit prays for then, for the saints, is always in perfect agreement with the will of God because the Spirit of God is God. And so their wills are the same. They always are the will of God. Now you might still be wondering how this works. How does the Spirit intercede for us? Well, surely the ministry of the Holy Spirit is clothed in mystery. We know that in all the great doctrines, carnation, resurrection. But we know the truths. But remember that word that was explained earlier, helps. The Holy Spirit helps us. That will help us here. Verse 26, we get to understand a bit more of the how, the how of the Spirit's ministry within us. It's not like it's a substitute prayer. You know, when you went to school and your teacher was ill, you would get a substitute teacher. And that teacher wasn't your regular teacher. Your regular teacher was home and this was another teacher to help you she was, or he was, the substitute teacher. But the Spirit's not a substitute prayer, like a substitute teacher. And we are merely then the channels so that the Spirit is the one who is praying for us and we don't have any involvement in it. No, that's not how the Spirit works. The Spirit helps us. He comes alongside us and over against us in our weakness. And it seems that the Apostle Paul is saying that the Spirit is mysteriously working in us that though the only thing we feel we can do is groan and sigh, he hears that within us. These are expressions of our heart. And the Holy Spirit is the one then who makes those groanings, those sighs understood to God. I had an uncle who was dumb. He couldn't speak. He could hear, but he couldn't speak. And when he was a boy, his father took him to the children's hospital in Toronto, but they couldn't help him, and they sent him back home. And as a little boy, that is me as a little boy, when my parents would take our family to see my grandfather and my grandmother, our grandfather, whom we affectionately called Opa, I remember being a bit afraid as a little boy because of all the strange noises that would come out of my uncle's mouth, all the groanings that he would utter. But there's something else that I'll never forget. That when my uncle would make 
what to me were strange, unintelligible sighs and grunts. Somehow, my opal would understand, and he would be able to, to interpret what his son was saying and calm his son or know exactly what his son was needing or what to say to him or how to console him and to serve him. And when my uncle passed away at an early age, his pastor preached his funeral sermon from Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And then, these beautiful words, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And as a young man, a teenager, sitting there listening to the sermon. And then so often, as I would reread these verses throughout the years, I thought of how appropriate this text was. My opa was a compassionate father to his children and to his grandchildren. And the Lord is much more compassionate to his children. And then, to think of the Lord as the Apostle Paul does in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord, he says, is the Spirit. The Spirit. You see, that's what the Apostle is saying here. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed with, with, with things in our lives, our situations, our, the circumstances, that we're grieved or we're confused and we don't know how to pray. And yet somehow, by the mysterious working of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity who loves us, who has compassion upon us, who remembers our frame, he remembers that we are dust. He prays for us. He intercedes with us. He who indwells us is interceding. He's praying with us and he's praying for us and forever whatever we need, for whatever grace that we need, we can be sure that that's the grace we shall receive from our Heavenly Father's gracious hand. Now, Scripture gives us a number of examples for, of such wordless prayers because of the difficulties of believers that they sometimes experience. That this is not just a novelty. No, this is the reality of the children of God. Think of Asaph. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints, and you uphold my eyelids. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. 
What's wrong, Asaph? I don't know, but I can't sleep. All I can do is moan. My spirit faints within me. I've no words to pray. Or consider godly Hezekiah, the poem he wrote. And that's recorded for us in Isaiah 38, when the prophet told him of his imminent death. Verse 14, 15, like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge for safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. How about the Apostle Peter? After he had denied our Lord Jesus three times. And you remember that moving scene in Luke's Gospel when Peter denied the Lord of glory the third time. And he heard the rooster crow. And Luke tells us that when when Peter was in that courtyard and our Lord Jesus was in that courtyard, their eyes locked. Their eyes locked. And then Luke tells us that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Peter was deeply convicted of his sin. He was was deeply convicted of what he should have done, what he should have said, and what he didn't do. And he was grieved to the depths of his being. He wept bitterly. And Luke doesn't record for us any prayer of contrition. All we hear is the groaning, the weeping. We see the tears because he's so overwhelmed with the grief of his burden, his failure to be all that he should have been as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not to say that there was no prayer. No, we can be sure. We can be sure that because of the Spirit's intercession, there was prayer in heaven coming from the soul of Peter deep within himself. Oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Pardon me for Christ's sake. And who can forget the moving scene that all the evangelists record of our beloved Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane when he realized to the fullest extent as the son of Mary, what it would mean, what Isaiah meant when he, would, when he prophesied that as a sheep he would be led to the shears. He would be led to a slaughter. And how in the anguish 
of his soul. He was sorrowful even unto death. And as he bled or he sweated blood, so great was the anguish within him. And do you remember how he pleaded? He pleaded with his three closest friends to be his prayer partners. And how three times they failed the Lord and their Savior. How three times they fell asleep and they failed the Lord. But you can be sure can be sure that the Lord had a prayer partner. Yes, the Holy Spirit was praying with him and for him. It was, he was the partner to our Lord Jesus, interceding for Jesus according to the will of God. And we know he was heard because he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Is there any way, dear Father, that you can remove the suffering and the anguish and the torment of my soul as I wait the death of the cross for sinners? Is there any way that you can remove that cup, that bitter cup of your wrath from me? Yet not my will, but what you will. And dear loved ones, your Savior went to the cross, you see. He went to the cross so that he might give you his blessed spirit. The Holy Spirit. That he might die for your sin. That he might make full atonement. And that he would ascend to glory, having been raised by the Spirit of holiness himself, so that on his return home, he might give his Holy Spirit, as Joel prophesied, to the church, to you and to me. So we might now know the blessed Spirit in our lives, so that we might have peace with God, but also as we endure all the difficulties, the perplexities of life. When you get that telephone call that changes your life or some tragic accident, you're so confused and perplexed by the providences of God. Or perhaps you've fallen into sin or your loved one has fallen into sin and you think your life is over. You're a complete failure. There's no hope. There's no restoration, you think. And all you can do is groan and weep. The Apostle Paul says to you, Dear child, dear child, don't be discouraged. You have a prayer partner. The Spirit of God interceding himself for you with groanings too deep for words. And so, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Christ is praying for you in heaven. And now the Apostle Paul tells us the Holy Spirit is praying for you in your heart, deep within you. 
and God the Father, who always hears the prayers of his Son and the prayers of his Holy Spirit, will graciously give you whatever you need when you need it. Aren't you thankful that you don't go through this life journeying through this world, yes, with groanings, eagerly awaiting with patient anticipation the adoption of sons, the fulfillment of God's redemption for you, body and soul restored in the glorious worship of God. But you don't travel alone. You journey with the Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit himself indwells you to sustain you in all your weakness. And he'll take you to glory. He who's promised, he is faithful. He'll do it. Amen. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your particular care and kindness to us. That you do not use our weakness against us, but you pity us. You have compassion upon us. And you show that to us in sending your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to dwell within us, to come alongside us, to take hold of our situation, to sustain us so that we might take hold of the situation as well, and to give us all that we need according to your riches and glory in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reassurance of your word and encouragement that it gives us, and how it refreshes our spirits even now as we travel to that heavenly home where our citizenship truly is. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, the one who has loved us and given us.